The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. It's a great pleasure today to welcome Shirin Dagan, Founder-CEO at Ariso and Chairwoman at Open Signal. Ariso provided network optimization solutions for wireless operators, and they were funded by Qualcomm Ventures and Oxford Capital Partners, and won dozens of tier one clients across Europe, Asia, and the Americas, prior to a JDSU acquiring Ariso for $85 million. Now, Shirin now chairs the board at OpenSignal, funded by Passion Capital, O'Reilly AlphaTech, and once again, Qualcomm Ventures. OpenSignal crowdsource wireless network performance data, and their mobile apps have been downloaded 20 million times, and billions of data points have been collected in over 200 countries. So, uh, Shirin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. In today's podcast, we're focusing on the importance of sales and marketing for technical founders and also the challenges of international expansion for startups and scale-ups. So just to begin with, Shirin, a bit of background on you and your journey into the world of technology leadership. Where were you born and where did you go to college? came to this country with my parents when I was 14 years old. So I did um, uh, O-levels and A-levels in this country and uh, then went to university and chose electronics as my course at Southampton University and uh, did a master's degree. So it took me four years and one year industrial placement. So it was a five-year course. Um, and the specialization that I chose whilst at Southampton was mobile communication. And that's sort of how I really went into the mobile industry back in sort of 1993. Um, I joined a, a small company in Southampton. I think I was the fifth employee there. Uh, and it was run by uh, the professor at Southampton University. It was a, a private company that he also held as well as his position at the uni. And that was really my first taste of small companies. Um, and I really loved working there. I spent six years um, really just working on technical uh, projects. And then uh, I joined Vodafone Research and Development uh, to focus on third generation mobile networks. At the time, 3G um, was still being standardized. So we're talking quite a while ago. Um, and uh, so, again, I continued my sort of technical work in the mobile sector for a further four years until I, I had my, uh, my idea for my business uh, to uh, deliver software products specifically focused on third generation and beyond uh, enabling mobile operators to automatically optimize the network based on real customer data. And uh, I set up Arisa back in 2002. And as you said in your introduction, it was sold in 2013. So a 10-year journey, um, close to 11 years, and uh, but thankfully a successful one. Yeah, a, a very successful one. And 
I was going to ask you what were the trigger points for you um, and your journey into the world of entrepreneurship. It sounds as if you went straight into startups from from the moment you um, finished at uh, Southampton University. So what, what prompted you to go straight into a startup rather than joining a large corporate? Um, I, I think at the beginning, um, I wasn't really thinking about startups so much, uh, or at least I wasn't aware of it. And the, the main reason I joined the company was because um, I, uh, I thought the, the person who owned it, i.e. the professor at Southampton University, he was a very well-known figure in the mobile industry, and I wanted to work for him. I, you know, that was kind of really the main reason why I joined his company. Um, and it gave it gave me a, I think, a really good platform to engage with uh, various companies, both on the equipment vendor side as well as operator side. Um, and because I hadn't really had a job up to that point, I really didn't know the difference between a small company and big company. But having sort of gone through that process with Vodafone and my first company. Um, I began to realize that really I, my, my preference very much lies in the kind of startup world. So um, really the joining of a startup from the beginning wasn't, wasn't really by design, if you will. <laughs> it, was, uh, it, it was purely um, opportunistic and, uh, yeah, that was, that was really you, you fell into the world of startups and decided you much preferred it to, uh, to the world of a lot Exactly. Of exactly. <laughs> Okay, so although you tasted startup life before Vodafone, you're, you're obviously an, an employee there in a, in a small team in that Southampton Uni um, um, spin out. Um, so when you started your own entrepreneurial journey, those initial um, one to two years, what were the biggest challenges and learnings in those early days? Well, I think. Um I think really I can um, divide the sort of ten and a half year journey that I had building Riso up into sort of two eras. So the first era being when um, I was primarily a technologist um, trying to build a company, and the second era is I was a commercial person trying to build a technical company. And um, so the sort of the first, if you like, few years, I uh, I really have to say I spent a lot of time just just learning that technology is not uh, the main reason why a company succeeds. It's certainly an important reason, but it's not the only reason. And I learned that lesson a hard way because um, you know being very focused on the technology, I always thought the best products would win. And um, sales and marketing really, from my perspective, took second place, um, maybe even third place in, in sort of building the company. And um, having gone through sort of the, the failure of the first product that we brought to the market uh, as part of my journey, um, I, you know, I learned, I learned my lesson the hard way that, you know, the best product doesn't always win. And you do need a very strong uh, sales and marketing machine in order to be able to bring the product to the market, defend its value and expand it. So when we came to the second product that we launched, which again, in your introduction, you talked about the dual location and uh, the subscriber-based uh, product, 
uh, Risogeo, um, I applied all the learnings and um, mistakes, if you will, in the first launch of the first product uh, and applied it to the second one and uh, things weren't a lot better. So I would say that the first few years, really, I I didn't know what I didn't know, and I I spent a lot of um, a lot of time learning uh, and making lots of mistakes. So how how were you funded in those early days when you didn't really know what you didn't know? Well, I mean, initially um, I I left my job. I was on my own effectively and um, bootstrapped the company for a couple of years. Um, and also got some early investment, seed investment um, from uh, who, became, who became my chairman, Mike Pinches, who was uh, formerly uh, CTO of Vodafone UK. Um, and he believed in the product. He was a technologist. And so, you know, I, I did a really good job of collecting a lot of uh, technical people around me who really liked the product. And uh, so I got some seed funding from him and from family, my brother invested and so on. Um, and then um, really for two, three years, it, it was it was pretty much um, running on very, very low, uh, low cash, low budget. Um, for example, I didn't get paid for the first three years of sort of Riso's um, journey, things like that, you know, stuff that you know every entrepreneur does and um i was quite lucky because my my husband was also in this field although in the sort of the software domain so um after about a year uh, of me resigning and setting up the reso uh he joined me in the company so sort of a husband and wife team building it up um and that made it somewhat easier um on sort of the family and because I had two small children at the time. So there was, there was kind of all those considerations as well. So I think, um, you know, from a cash perspective, you know, quite um, cash strapped for the first three years. And then uh, we managed to raise one and a half million pounds of venture capital money. And that's when we really could actually afford to hire a proper team. Uh, up to that point, it was, it was literally working day, night, weekends. Etc. Etc. And using whoever we could. Um, I also had people who did stuff for me um, for 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 example for share options. Um, you know, Professor Ian Gross, for example, who helped me out a lot uh, with his wife on on many aspects of the business. So there were a lot of us working for free at the beginning. <laughs> so that that realization of the importance of sales and marketing did that happen before the um, initial VC round. I think you mentioned 1.5 million. Did that happen before you raised the the, the first round or afterwards? Um, no, because when we raised the one and a half million pounds, um, that was when the product was kind of ready to be launched. So we you know we learned those lessons afterwards. So when we um, when we launched the product, um, actually on my own, I had managed to built quite a nice pipeline, even though it was very much um, focused on the technical community. So, you know, I had Vodafone interested, O2 interested, and all mostly UK-based because we didn't have a lot of funds to go anywhere else. Um, so I, I did have quite a number of mobile operators interested in our product, um, but I'd been only focused on the on the technical circles and um 
and that was you know that that mistake played out um really after we raised the money um because we lost vodafone group which was a massive contract and the main reason uh in my opinion was that we were completely outsold by the competitor whilst you know we were focused on the technical team trying to trying to get them happy and convince them that this is a great product, which they thought it was, and we won the trials and everything else and competitively. But actually, we weren't really talking to the decision makers and the people who actually held the budget, but our competitor was. So guess who won? Um, and that was a really hard lesson to learn. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, we learned it after we raised the VC money. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, <laughs> because we, we, it depends on your point of view. <laughs> well, that's a, a valuable lesson for, for any um, entrepreneurs out there, especially in the B2B space, to, to pick up on um, the importance of um, engaging with the right decision makers and influencers inside those, uh, those large enterprise, uh, enterprise customers. Um, so once you'd, you'd figured that out and, and began to, to turn things around, turn things around when when did you really begin to scale up at Ariso um, as opposed to be be a startup that had some funding and and, and had figured out the importance of sales and marketing when did things really take off and and, and the big scale up start to happen well I think um, uh, sort of before before the scaling up um, because we we lost a major um, contract with Vodafone with the first product. We won OT UK, which was fantastic, but Vodafone Group was a much, much bigger contract, which we lost. Our competitor could basically go and claim that they, they were the number one in the market, which they were, uh, in, that, in that particular category of product in the first product that we brought out, which was called ACP or Automatic Cell Planning. And, um, and really, we were being hammered everywhere uh, by them because they, they won the big prize and obviously they could go around and tell your other operators that, you know, they were the ones to do business with. And that argument works, right? Uh, so we, we um, what I realized very quickly was that they were cleaning up in Europe and it was really hard to compete with them after that uh, loss that we suffered. So I switched to the US and, uh, where, where they weren't active. And uh, so I spent um, a good one year living out in the U.S. And I had some of my really key employees, uh, guys like Ian Marston, who basically I, I asked them to go and live out there. And, and, uh, and together with myself, we tried to get into AT&T, which was a massive, massive operator in the U.S. So really, we saved the company by uh, switching our focus from Europe to uh, a geographical place where our competitor was interactive. And, and by that time, we had kind of learned lessons of how to sell that product. And we managed to get our first product into AT&T, which really um, resurrected, I would say, the company from, um, from a near-death kind of uh, uh, perspective. And then, but it was quite clear that, you know, this company was not going to succeed on the back of the first product that we had. And, you know, even though we'd won AT&T and we'd won some customers in Europe and so on, um, our competitor pretty much cleaned up um, all, the other com all the other customers. And it was really um, 
unless we came up with a second product, the company was going to, in my opinion, die. So that was when um, I had to completely reinvent Ariso. And when I say reinvent, I mean completely new product concept. Uh, I had to bring in new people, um, people who had developed uh, software for real time, access to network information and um, bring in a new CTO. At the time, my husband was the CTO. So it, you know, that, that was a really difficult decision to, to ask him to step down and, and actually bring an external CTO who, who could help me bring a, a sort of a, a big data enterprise real-time uh, software into the market. And at the time, um, my vision was that, you know, we should completely put aside anything that's to do with drive testing, anything that's to do with uh, predicted data, which is what pretty much all operators use, and actually use subscriber data, i.e. go back to the vision of the company and implement that final vision of the company. And, um, and that was, that was a, a massive transformation. That needed to happen. At the same time, I had to um, regain the confidence of my investors because obviously they were uh, they were not happy with how things were going with the first product, and I had to sort of reinvigorate them about the second product and um, and give them the confidence that things are going to be different this time, and uh, you know this is this is really going to work. And thankfully, they uh, they believed me, they backed me, provided more funding uh, to enable me to. Or change out the team and um, not, not necessarily change out, but actually add and refocus um, the team. And then uh, we went for raising a B round to properly bring that product into the market. So there was a whole host of things that needed to happen at Ariso um, before we sort of went and scaled the company. And that took a period of two to three years to do that. Once we had our second product out in the market, that was when uh, you know the focus was completely put on the whole sales and marketing and getting that product out there um, as quickly as possible. And that's that's when we really started scaling both the sales side as well as the the front line uh, technical sales and our services team. And as, as you switched so um, aggressively into sales and marketing, um, as well as expanding internationally, how, how did the culture at Ariso evolve during that phase? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the culture was already kind of international because, you know, um, AT&T was a massive customer. If you recall, I said first product really what what saved the company was the fact that we managed to sell our product to AT&T into the state so you know we were already doing international business um and our CTO the new CTO that we brought on board he was American Dr. Michael Flanagan he's based in New Jersey so there was already a um a level of working with people abroad and and certainly one of my key guys was based in the US so culturally um the company Certainly, at the point of uh, scaling, didn't go through a massive transformation. However, um, as we brought on board more salespeople and more um, staff in different parts of the uh, different parts of the world, for example, South America, 
Um, we had quite a few employees in Mexico and Brazil, various parts of the world, um, in Asia and Middle East. Um, then we had to sort of keep that culture going and the culture of winning and um, making sure that, you know, everyone felt um, part of the whole growth story of Ariso. And I think um, on the whole, we managed to do that very successfully. And there were a number of things that we did in order to achieve that. But to keep a, a, essentially a team that's uh, internationally diverse and geographically diverse is it, quite a hard thing. And I would say that we managed to keep, um, keep the whole team intact uh, culturally, uh, I would say successfully. <laughs> Sounds like you had some some really challenging times and then made it through to be incredibly successful in the in the longer term. So during those those times, have you had mentors who've helped you develop your ideas and, and your approach? Who are the people you've turned to for advice? Um, I would say that really. Um when I started my company back in 2002, startup wasn't really a thing in the UK. Um, I mean, I, when, I, when I handed in my resignation uh, at Vodafone and came out on my own, you know, business link was, yeah, you know, one thing I could approach. There was a couple of others, but really there wasn't an incubator like it is, like you have today. You have a lot, a lot of support for startups today. That certainly wasn't around at that time. And what I did as best as I could was to bring in people that were sort of in the business world and, um, you know, people like my first chairman, Mike Pinches, like uh, Pessy and Gross, and those guys who'd been in the industry and used them as mentors. For example, another person was a non-exec, Graham Ward. So these people really helped me uh, in the initial phase of, um, of the company. Um, in terms of a real mentor, I would say that the thing that um, – I, I found really, really helpful was my chairwoman who joined me later on uh, after we had the second product, uh, Terry Vega. And you know, she and I just clicked um, from both personality-wise and, uh, and approach. Uh, you know, I'm a very straight talker, straightforward, go and get things done kind of a person. And so is she. So we we, we absolutely saw eye to eye um, from that perspective, and I found her a tremendous mentor uh, for me. Um, certainly, also being a woman, it was it was really great to, to have a uh, lady mentor as it were in, in in my business. It's, it's interesting that you ended up with a, a female um, chair chairperson, a chairwoman who, who you found to be a, a, an incredibly um, effective mentor as well there's a lot of talk these days about diversity in the tech sector about diversity in in start the world of startups and silicon valley um as well as here in europe um were there any challenges being a, a female founder um within the uk's tech venture community um i would say not at all i i, I certainly didn't experience any um, challenges. In fact, I, I can say that it was an advantage. And the reason I say that is because there's so few 
uh, women, especially in my sector, in the mobile communication sector, that actually you do stand out. And if you know what you're talking about, then uh, you stand out for the right reasons. And uh, actually, that really helps your business, or at least it did in my case. So um, I, I think that, you know, I would certainly um, welcome far more women into, into engineering and certainly into my sector. But the reality is that there's just not enough of us uh, out there. Uh, but I, I, never, I never felt a disadvantage being a woman. So you engaged with Qualcomm Ventures, Carbon Trust and Oxford Capital Ventures. What, what's yeah. the story behind you taking investment from that particular group of both corporate, and, and they don't come that much bigger than Qualcomm in terms of corporate backers, both corporate and independent, somewhat smaller independent venture firms? Yeah, sure. Um, so when we were raising our B round, um, this was really to launch the second products that we had. Um, we, you know, we were looking for um, you know, people who could bring not just money, but also um, the, the strategic angle and value to the company. And Oxford Capital and Corecom Venture teamed up together um, to invest in the company. And the person who was representing Oxford Capital um, uh, a guy called Richard Marsh, I, I really respected and I really liked him. Uh, he was an entrepreneur before, so I felt that he would really understand what it, what it would be like to build a company. He would, he would get the operational side and, and add a lot of value uh, in the board, so I really liked him. And Corcom Venture, for, for the obvious reason that you know we wanted to um, really focus uh, on getting this product out there to mobile operators and to have somebody like Qualcomm, especially with their roller deck of uh, various you know, operators that, you know, that they knew, um, I felt that that combination was, uh, was really strong. Carbon Trust came afterwards. Uh, they really came um, when we just needed a little bit of top up onto our B round and the company was doing really, really well. So, they were tipped off by OCP, I think, to say, well, this is a really good company you want to invest now. And so that was that was really the reason. Um, but yeah, I, I would say OCP and Qualcomm were um, where the comb were the main guys who actually invested in the B round. Sure. So sticking with funding and, and venture capital, what advice do you have for a technology founder, especially a, an enterprise or B2B technology founder, embarking on their first VC fundraise? Yeah, I would say um, the advice I have is that, you know, treat VCs just as you, you treat your customers. Um, you need to convince them. Um, in fact, you need to even convince them more than you, you need to convince your customer. Um, in a way, they're, they're harder um, to get on your side. And, uh, and really just perseverance I mean the thing that really got me my first investment uh, because when I left Vodafone in 2002 and set up my own company I immediately started to try to raise money but I couldn't no one would invest in someone who doesn't have a track record and just got an idea etc so it took me three years um, you know from the moment I set up my company to actually raising the first proper VC round so um Patience, uh, making sure that, you know, you have a solid um, business plan you can defend 
and you can really demonstrate that the product that you're trying to bring to market actually adds value uh, to the customers. I think those are the things that I would really uh, focus on as a, as a technical entrepreneur. Great, great advice, Shirin. A few rapid fire questions now. So if you weren't an entrepreneur, what other profession would you love to try? Oh, um, what other profession? Oh, gosh. Um, I think I would, I would really like to uh, work, work on some, some project to do with the United Nations and humanity type projects. I, I, would, I think I would really enjoy that. Um, I think yeah, I think that would that would that would really get my juices going if I wasn't doing entrepreneurship. I mean, I love entrepreneurship, I love growing companies, but you know, to be involved in a humanitarian project would be uh, would be awesome as well. Well, there's still still plenty of time for that. Um, okay. what's what's your favorite book and why? Um, my favorite book is. Um, why nations fail and i can't recall the um the writer at this minute and i found it quite fascinating it was it was a book about why is it that certain nations fail and certain nations succeed even though you know they might be in very similar geographical areas and um and literally they are divided by a border um, and you cross the border and suddenly, you know, you're in a wealthy country and if you don't, you're not. Um, and, and I thought that, that book was really fascinating about some of the reasons you came up with for, for why that's the case. And are there lessons for businessmen and women as well to draw from, from the ideas in that book? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the main message of the book is the reason um, you know, there are poor countries uh, is primarily to do with the enablement and the infrastructure that the government um, puts at the disposal of people, um, where people can have the, have the infrastructure to grow and flourish, um, then more wealth gets created. Unfortunately, in poor countries, um, you don't have those uh, types of um, facilities really given to ordinary people. So there is a massive hierarchy and therefore to do business is really, really hard. Um, you have to know the right people who know the right people, et cetera, et cetera. And, and in those societies that, need, you know, basically it makes it hard for people to be entrepreneurial. And I think that that's the key lesson that the reason why certain countries are wealthy is because they actually enable everybody to to rise and and to you know to do what they think can progress them in you know, to the best of their ability so yeah so that was kind of the main point for business people i think for example if i if i hadn't moved to england when i was 14 um there is no way that i would have been as successful entrepreneur in my own country as i have been in the uk uh, the UK has given me the opportunity to to do what I'm good at um, and to grow a business and has helped me from an infrastructure perspective and support and so on. Whereas in my own home country, Iran, you know, um, 
there was there would be absolutely no way, especially for a woman, to do what I did here. Wow. Okay. So interesting um, insights there at the geopolitical level. <laughs> um, so <laughs> let's think about the future for you and for Open Open Signal. Tell us about the next. Um, three years for you and the roadmap for uh, scaling open signal globally yeah I mean I'm actually really excited about open signal um, you know they they are working to become the gold standard of how mobile network quality service is measured using real customer um, handsets data and um, and really bring that element of independence to the mobile uh, industry and get the mobile operators to focus on their quality of service. Because I think mobile operators, unless forced to, they don't really want to spend too much money improving the coverage for you and I. Um, and I think you know a company like Open Signal gets out there and puts reports, public reports out there that really um, can measure independently how different mobile operators are performing can be a catalyst to those mobile operators really focusing on quality of service. And I think this this will become even more important as we move towards 5G. And, um, you know, with services that are going to be um, requiring far more greater data rates, low latencies, we're talking about virtual reality, you know, uh, connected cars, uh, driverless vehicles. I mean, there's a, there's a huge, um, I think, technological revolution taking place over the next five to 10 years. And I think that means that, especially from an open signal perspective, it puts them in a really, really strong position to push operators on uh, what quality of service they're delivering to their subscribers. So a very bright future for Open Signal. That's uh, that's great to hear. And aside from Open Signal itself, do you have ambitions to create another startup, or would you rather build out a portfolio of of non-exec roles? Um, at this point, I, I'm obviously involved with Open Signal only. Um, I I might be going towards sort of more portfolio type of um, to help a, a number of startups. But I haven't quite made up my mind yet. Um, at the moment, I'm, I'm sort of weighing up my options. And, um, and if, you know, if there is a, um, if there is a, an opportunity to do my own startup, I, I, I'll certainly think about that very, very strongly because I, I thoroughly enjoyed my first one and uh, would love to do it again but uh, it has to be obviously the right um, the right thing and I'm still working on that <laughs> well we wish we wish you a huge success whether you are, are sticking just with open signal or um, maybe later on launching launching another fresh innovative idea it's been fascinating speaking to you today Shirin I'm really impressed with your candor, to be honest, that the, the way you walked us through the challenges and struggles you had in the early days of Riso, that was an eye-opener. Um, the success you went on to have up after those early struggles will surely inspire any budding entrepreneurs out there. I actually wrote down Shirin the Brave as I was <laughs> listening to you because uh, some of the challenges you had to overcome 
and uh, when when things were delicate, shall we say, moving moving over to the states and and really focusing your attention, raising more funding, focusing your attention on on that U.S. success with AT and T. That was a really brave move, but uh, clearly it paid off. So uh, well done. Thanks again for joining us today. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.